I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is Important, Not Important. Let's say you get sick, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, long COVID, PTSD or MS, depression, Alzheimer's. Despite the best efforts of you and your physician, nothing's working. You're out of answers and you're out of questions. You might both be increasingly out of time. Your doctor's next 30 patients are waiting impatiently in the waiting room for her. Her schedule is overscheduled every day. Your own situation is worsening, or at least unmanageable. Where do you turn? There must be someone, somewhere, working on your specific problem, working to better understand it, at least maybe to treat it, maybe to cure it, or at least prevent it for the next person who might be susceptible to getting it because of time, because of some genetic factor, because of exposure to a virus or air pollution, toxic chemical or materials. How do you find out if they exist? And if they do, how do you find them? How do you connect with them? How could you possibly work with them on your condition? How could you volunteer yourself for their work, knowing they might not have the answers? but knowing you won't know and they won't know until you try. For almost 25 years, the best answer has been to visit a government-run website called clinicaltrials.gov. And I know because I've done the work and I've done the research, and I've sent tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people to it for help. But even if you are able to sort through what is basically a Windows 95 era database and find the trial that's right for you, What if it's hundreds of miles away? So many of us could benefit from better awareness and better access to cutting-edge research that could save the lives of people we love. And so many researchers are frustrated by the inability to sign people like you or your daughter or your dad or your t-ball coach up for their trial. It's 2022. We can do better better. My guest today is Brandon Lee. Brandon is the co-founder of Power, the new and arguably most patient-friendly platform for clinical trials ever made. Brandon and team are making it easy for all patients to use Power to discover promising clinical trials and get in touch with the researchers directly. My mission here is outcome-based, to connect you with the most measurable ways to take action, to feel better, and to drive systemic change. There's so much we can do to rebuild public health, of course, we've discovered that, to do the basic shit we need to do to take care of one another. But simultaneously, by increasing the success of vastly more inclusive clinical trials, we can accomplish all of those goals at the same time. As always, you can reach me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. I'm at Twitter, at Quinn Emmett. Let's go talk to Brandon. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Quinn. 100%, 100%. I'm excited to dig into this today. It's so exciting. I send our readers and listeners to clinicaltrials.gov all the time. Oh, no. It is a wonderful oh. tool, and it is from the Stone Age. When I saw your announcement, I was like, oh, my God, this is so exciting. Right, finally. <laughs> For a thousand reasons. Finally, someone did something about this. <laughs> it both seems so obvious, but I can't even imagine how much work it's been. Sure. So before we get into it, though, I'd like to start with one important question to set the tone for this whole thing. Brandon, I like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And I encourage you to be bold and honest. 
and have some fun. Yeah, absolutely. So this is actually one of the things that my my co-founder and I thought a lot about when embarking on um, on our next adventure. So to to kind of catch you up here, we had just finished a journey with another early stage startup. It had been acquired um, by a by a larger company, Thumbtack, and we sat down and we thought, okay, what do we want to do next? And when we uh, when we did that, we outlined four really interesting trends. Um, that we thought would impact humanity over the next 20, 50 years that we might want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. One of those trends was around biology. And the um, the thesis was that the next 20 years of biology would look like the last 20 mm-hmm. years of software. Um, with all the really exciting movements that we've been seeing in the life sciences. Sure. Unfortunately, when we dug under the hood, we realized that life sciences is unfortunately incredibly bottlenecked by the clinical trial process. And you know we can get into what power does in a second, but the fundamental reason why we got um, excited about this over a 20 year time horizon is that I think the work we can do here is accelerate the speed of life sciences. Um, and that's a mission mm-hmm. worth being on. Ooh, I like that, I like that. And this gets into a little bit and what I would love to dig into in a little while is, you know, you're really addressing a pretty fundamental two-sided market sure. here. And that's a piece of it that's obviously going to be pretty vital. I mean, everyone has benefited so much in the past few years, obviously, from all the hard work that went into trying to make mRNA vaccines not just work, but also be safe for people. And then, you know, a few folks kind of capitalized on that right in time. And um, these things are hard, though, and they take a lot of hard work and people on both sides. And it takes folks who are willing to be part of trials, but it's hard to do that if if you're not aware that they exist or you can't access them in any way. So I want to talk about consumer experience. So why don't you give, again, in the intro, I described a little bit for people, but if people skip that on a description of what power is and, and what you're trying to do there, but why don't you give us a couple lines on what it does, and then we'll talk about why that matters as opposed to clinicaltrials.gov. At a fundamental level at power, we believe that every patient deserves to have access to leading medical research if it could help them. Unfortunately, today, it's only those that have access to top doctors and top hospitals that might be in the know mm-hmm. for, the, for the cutting edge research that is being done in the clinical trial system. The problem is that if you're a patient who's looking for a, a clinical trial or is in a situation where you know, the standard treatments have failed, uh, oftentimes you'll be sent to this website that uh, you and I know and love, uh, clinicaltrials.gov. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, that .gov website was built 20 years ago and it wasn't built for the average patient. It wasn't built for uh, for the average user. It was actually built as a broadcasting mechanism for clinical research and largely targeted at um, other researchers and um, essentially ethics review boards to, uh, to mm-hmm. kind of have a single source of truth um, on that side. It wasn't built for the end user. Um, what does that mean? Well, what happens is that when patients go to clinicaltrials.gov, oftentimes they can't find the information they're looking for. They can't figure out who to get in contact with. And unfortunately, they give up too soon. So that's what we're trying to solve here. We're trying to build the first patient-centric experience to look for clinical trials. And in the process of doing so, help more patients finally get access to leading medical researchers and at the same time, accelerate the speed of life science. I love that. I think it's great. I mean, it's easy for folks, I think, in our generation to look at a website like clinicaltrials.gov and evaluate it on, you know, as objectively as we can, which is 
government has a hard time building <laughs> building things like this. It's not necessarily made to be consumer centric, very old, and we know how where the money goes with all these things and all these things. Probably functional, but uh, it's difficult to access. It's difficult, like you said, to f- figure out what information is relevant to you, much less how to use it in a in a practical way to. Um, to further your end goal, which is probably just to feel better in some way or to help a loved one who's maybe at the end of their rope for some variety sure. of reasons. But the consumer experience matters. And look, we talk about it all the time, right? People have been trying to reinvent plane tickets for 20 years. They print it out, you check your bag, you look at the ticket and you're just like, I, where do I go? Right. <laughs> like, well, what do I do? It's ridiculous. In the age where like we have these incredible infographics, like this shouldn't be that difficult, right? To just think like, who's the person that's going to be using this the most, right? But it matters, this patient experience, and and we don't do a very good job of thinking about it. So we have covered here maternal health, Mm. um, black health, hearts and lungs, emergency room weights, uh, vaccine data, right, Uh, communications around masks, the costs of cardiovascular and cancer treatments and how abhorrent those are, birth control tests and what that does for depression and anxiety and electronic health records, all this different stuff. The point is like the patient experience, again, could be way better for how much we spend, if you're too young to remember. When Obamacare launched and crashed the same day, they brought in this sort of crack team of private market folks to rescue it, essentially, rebuild it on the fly. Um, That team eventually morphed into a group that's still around today, the United States Digital Service. And they were sort of tasked for a while with updating whatever they could to get through the bureaucracy. And that team still exists, but there's obviously a world of opportunity for new looks at some of these vital tools. And that's what, when we're talking offline, I was saying it's what you're doing seems so obvious, but also must be just like massively difficult. I'm curious if you can tell folks a little bit about why for you, clinical trials, why did you decide this was your way into healthcare? Like you were saying, you see these bottlenecks in life sciences and we see it all the time. And yet, you know, the market for all these small cap synthetic biotech companies are, are cratering because it's difficult and demand and, and all this stuff. Why did you have to do this? What sort of itch does it scratch for you? That's a great question. So there's kind of two things that come together here. Um, the first is, you know, from a professional experience standpoint, like what kind of teed us up into this direction. And the second one is like, uh, actually, a way more personal experience uh, that kind of drives this home. So professionally, like I was saying, right, my co-founder and I um, had just finished building a marketplace. Our background is in building, scaling, marketplace-style product and businesses, specifically to accelerate or make a dent into traditionally real-world and old-school businesses. So that's what we knew how to do. And what ended up happening is he has his own personal story, and that's his story to tell. But on my end, I had a very close friend of mine diagnosed with a brain tumor around three years ago. And luckily, she's doing okay largely because she was able to find her own clinical trial online and get herself enrolled. And as you could imagine, that experience was a slog. She was largely able to do it through self-directed research by speaking to friends and family that have medical backgrounds, and frankly, through the kindness of strangers on the internet. Being on that journey with her helped me personally realize just how difficult this experience is for patients like her and patients and other patients that are going through a similar journey as well. So what we realized was that there was an opportunity for us to build bring some of this professional background that we had, some like unique skills that we knew how to apply in other spaces and bring it to the clinical trial space and hopefully have a ton of impact here for patients that are in a similar situation. Can you talk a little bit about, without getting too too nerdy here, uh, we, can, we can do that offline, but how does one approach 
This is always one of my favorite questions. This will be, I think, a little more applicable to not the common listener, but folks who are a little more educated, a little more technical. But one of my favorite questions is always, where would I, a liberal arts major podcast host, (laughs) start with this project? So we talked to a couple uh, scientists last year, year before, who are working uh, with the Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation to try to devise treatments for pediatric, specific types of pediatric cancer, um, and they use zebrafish as models. And I was just like, where would I start? Where do you even buy zebrafish? I don't know the answer to that. And so I'm curious on your side, on the technical side, where does one start working with that kind of data? Is there an API from clinicaltrials.gov that you're building on? How does this actually work? Yeah, that's a great question. So from a technical standpoint, actually, one of the things that has happened, you know, in the last couple of years that has allowed us to do this today is really incredible advancements in data science and large language models in particular. Mm -hmm. So... Historically, if you wanted to do something like this, you are probably hiring an army of science-educated individuals to go reading all of the unstructured information that is out there about clinical trials, restructuring it, and trying to find a way to list it on the internet, and then hopefully manually help individual patients navigate the system. And that's largely because a lot of the data is this unstructured medical jargon, just like these unstructured blobs of text. Sure. But what we can do today is actually apply a healthy amount of data science on that text, on that on that information, uh, that's all publicly available information, uh, and then structure it in a unique way that wasn't possible before. And when we're able to structure it, then we can actually build really meaningful user experiences, patient experiences, which you see now on our website. Yeah. I mean, it's wild to click on, again, not to beat it. I'm sure there's wonderful people working sure. on it, but to click on clinicaltrials.gov and 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 to see yours and go like, oh, not just this is probably more helpful, but this is a lovely place to be. You know, it's like sitting in a nice waiting room where you're like, oh, these magazines are, are fantastic. <laughs> I hope my result comes back nicely. So the consumer experience matters, and there's a few different layers to the funnel, but I want to talk about the other side of it as well. You know, how do we help these trials succeed? So just going through sort of some of the research, one study says 86% or so of U.S. clinical trials are delayed because of a lack of enrollment, which has got to just be, I guess if it's that much, it's both got to be predictable for these researchers and the companies that support them, but also still frustrating for this to continue happening. And I know we're in this advent of, you know, Apple Watch can possibly do some things and how does that open it up to certain people, this and that. On the other hand, the trials are often either technologically or geographically limiting, right? Research hospitals are few and far between, if you can even parse the data on clinicaltrials.gov, but then you've got to actually get there. And that's to bring it back up. I have always loved working with Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation because, first of all, kids' cancer, like, why does it exist? That's awful. So they do two things. They fund research like this, but they also pay for travel for families. Because if you do find a trial that's applicable to how you are sick or a loved one is sick, much less a child, then you have to pay to get there. You have to pay for lodging, for the food there. By the way, if you're going to one of these, your loved one or yourself, you're probably not in great shape as it is, whatever it may be. And yet we can't conduct these trials or find out if it works if you can't get there, especially women and marginalized people and pregnant people from this huge variety of socioeconomic backgrounds that we've got. So I'm curious, it's easy to look at this and as a consumer, when I click on it, go, this is great. I would love to use this. I'm super curious, much less I need it. What sort of work did you do on the other side before, as you're building power to understand the needs of researchers and their organizations, knowing these limitations that are inherent and sort of intractable. I mean, they can't 
move their hospital. But what can you do to make this more useful to them? You're hitting on a couple interesting topics here, right? Like the first interesting topic is... Yeah, um, sorry if I'm bouncing around. It's all exciting. No, we, we, and we can, you know, double click, click into any of them in whatever order. But at the highest level, I think what you're talking about here is there is a... There's a well-researched representation problem. In fact, racial minorities are 3 to 10x underrepresented in clinical research, which is, which is awful because we know that a lot of treatments react differently in different racial groups. Uh, what does that mean? It means we actually have a downstream public health crisis where treatments are being approved in largely white populations that, where we're not sure you know, just exactly how sure. they might respond in different groups of people. So we've got this large representation problem. One of the interesting things that we found is that I think there's a myth out there that the representation problem needs to be solved by, you know, popping up a bunch of new locations in a lot of different places because you know, racialized sure. groups don't live near near trial sites. That's like a thing that we hear a lot. Racialized groups don't live near trial sites. Sure. While there might be demographic skews, I think it's just untrue. <laughs> if you look at America okay. today, <laughs> that there are locations and cities and geographies that don't have uh, people of different demographics. Uh, that's just not true. What's really happening here is that there's a transparency and accessibility issue. So um, I would reframe the representation issue as a transparency and accessibility issue. I'll give you an example. Sure. So a patient um, that I was speaking with recently has multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis is a neurodegenerative condition that affects your ability to, to eventually walk over time, right? They were doing their own research and they realized that there was really promising stem cell research that is happening on this condition. They realized that there was an opportunity to get access to this treatment down in Panama. It was going to cost them $75,000 and a lot of travel back and forth to Panama, right? While they're dealing with this condition. Eventually they ended up finding our platform and they realized uh, through our platform that there was actually somebody doing this exact research within an hour's drive of them. So what happened? Wow. Well, that transparency, that accessibility has allowed them to realize that there's actually something next door or relatively near um, that they could get access to mm. just a car ride away. I think that's really the, the unlock here is allowing folks who are within you know a stone's throw of, of sure. the research to truly understand that it's available and in their backyard. Whereas today, there's no easy way to do so. That's super helpful. So I guess then before we dial into the, the researcher side, the clinical side, and what it requires to service that side of the market. So you've got folks like this person with MS, which takes its time, but the conclusions are fairly succinct and you want to try to get ahead of it if you can. Mm -hmm. Even though we've made so many discoveries this year uh, when they talked about Epstein-Barr. And that's incredible. I mean, it's just a piece of information and there's a whole world of things that we have to now ask more questions on. It's another string to pull, but that's helpful. That's great. Above that, before that MS, uh, that person who's suffering from MS can use your tool and find, oh my gosh, I don't have to go to Panama. I can go within striking distance, wherever that may be. The top of the funnel really is awareness. And I know that there's a lot of folks who've talked about that this is sort of one of our primary things is that when you've got... Um, 5% of doctors are black, and right. I think nurses yeah. are even fewer. Indigenous, it's even worse. You've got, they're not aware that they're even candidates for trials, much less that this is something that could be available to them in any capacity for however they're sick or their loved ones. So basically, it's the top of the funnel is awareness. How do we solve for awareness knowing people are just not going uh, to the doctor as much as they could have? or they're not connecting with these type of researchers, they might not be associated with these type of hospitals. How do we solve for that before they can even get to your tool? To solve the awareness problem, you can think of there's, there's roughly two different paths here, right? You've outlined an interesting phenomenon, which is that providers 
will often be subject to some subconscious bias that might influence whether they are proactively suggesting trial opportunities to, to patients. Uh, one path is let's go change everybody's minds and, and, and solve subconscious sure. bias. Uh, that's a pretty tough path. Right. Go get them. I mean, great, admirable, but totally. come on. It's, and it's a thing we need to do. There's a lot of this actually 100%. recent, uh, recent yeah. really interesting lit that came out that showed that more diverse research teams are more equitable in the way that they're able to recruit patients from their existing pool of population, pools of populations, sure. um, which makes total sense. But that's a that's sure. a long term cultural battle that we probably an uphill battle that we need to uh, that we need to embark on. The other approach is, I mean, this is the approach that that we're taking here is. We fundamentally believe in empowered patients, right? Like part, part of the pun here. Mm -hmm. One of the broader, more interesting trends in digital health that has played out over the last couple of years is um, the empowered patient. You know, people are increasingly taking control mm -hmm. of their own care and doing their own research. In fact, self-directed research into clinical trials has grown 22x in the last seven years, wow. right? Um, these are people wow. who are learning about their condition and going online to try to figure out what else is out there. Do you think any of that is indicative of folks who didn't have health insurance before the ACA and are maybe seeing doctors for the first time and being diagnosed with things for the first time? I don't know. You know, I don't know. I, uh, I don't think we've looked at the data that way. Regardless, what we do know is that people are doing what you would expect them to do, which is going to the internet and sure. trying to find answers. Unfortunately, sure. There's no, there are no good sources of, of truth on the internet. You've got clinicaltrials.gov, yeah, or you've got Pfizer's website, or you've got Novartis's website, yeah. or you've got Genentech's website. Yeah. And what does that mean? Well, then the patient- or you got Yahoo Answers. you got Yahoo right. Answers. And then yeah. what does that mean? You gotta, you gotta go to Pfizer, Genentech, um, and, and so on and so forth, and look at all of their websites to try to figure out what else is out there um, and compare and contrast. Whereas we're a single source of truth. They go to one place and they can know that this is what's out there. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because one of the things I've really wrestled with and been increasingly frustrated and vocal about the past couple of years is sort of predictably, you know, we have all these empowered patients and that's awesome and that's important. And and my wife is the daughter of a former emergency room doctor mm. and how important it is, is especially, um, you know, she's a woman who's had miscarriages and, and heart operations and this and that and how important it is to often have an advocate in the room with you to ask questions, especially if you're all of these things where, again, you have to keep empowering yourself and we have to empower each other to ask the right questions, to go to the appointments, to go further, to say, can I see a specialist? Can I get a second opinion? People are scared to do that. But at the same time in this country, we have such a history of making things your problem. Yep. And now we have done that with a pandemic, which is the definition of public health, right? And sort of the history of medicine and health in this country has gone from whenever it was 100 years ago, Turns out dirty water can make you sick. Washing your hands is super important. These are public health things to focus on, on medicine. You know, how specific that is to the person. And now with the pandemic, we went from everyone stay home, everyone help each other, do as much as you can, stay six feet away, do it, not just doing it for me, I don't want to give it to you, to it's very much on you, you know? And now we're going to have to be paying for vaccines because Congress hasn't given the administration any more money to pay for them and tests and all this stuff. I just wonder where the line is of, again, it's so important to celebrate and, and empower empowered patients, but also to be as supportive as we can to people. Again, it's easy to celebrate that. Ultimately, one of the interesting things that has kind of stuck with me like through this journey is that you kind of said a moment ago that we have a history of making it like your problem you know, in this country. We have a history mm -hmm. of making it your problem in this country, which is true. When you look at it, 
from the provider's perspective, like one thing we, we could ask ourselves is like, what's happening on the ground in these clinics? Why aren't, you know, physicians more actively advocating like for their patients? One of the things that's, uh, that's also happening is that physician time is getting squeezed. They sure. have less budgeted time allocated to each patient. Um, their schedules are mm. chaotic, like back to back to back with new patients. And unfortunately, what that means is that they've got a bunch of throughput, but they don't have the time to do the research on the patient's behalf anymore. Whereas previously, maybe they did have a little bit more time to, to do so. You know, that's one of the things that is unfortunately happening. And as a result, we need better tools for patients in this country. Yeah. And it's also, again, like we can pull on every yeah, totally. every string of the sweater here, but it's, you know, it's like, how do we transition to value-based care, sure. right? Which is doctors that don't have to have these incredibly packed schedules. And then taking a piece of each of those very short appointments to hunt and peck into an electronic health record that doesn't speak to other electronic health records that, like you yes. said, is fairly unstructured information, even if Epic is whatever, one third of record, you know, all these things. It's like, yes, we've made a lot of progress, but boy, did we discover, for instance, when count cities and counties and states and, and school districts had to report to positive test data and you're like, oh, it's just, oh, it's still faxes. Got it. And that's partly because we haven't you know, supported anything and we've bankrupted state budgets, but also because of HIPAA for some reasons and, and this and that. And you just go, again, we've made a lot of progress in the past 10 years, but we've got a long way to go to make these things functional, but also to normalize and incentivize care to spend the time with the patient to be able to understand where they're coming from, to answer their questions, to ask questions of them, to present opportunities to them, but also to give physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners and other sports staff the time to, like you said, do the research and do some homework and be inquisitive and curious so that they can offer more well-rounded help. And again, not asking you to solve that on this conversation, but I just want to make sure people don't go, awesome, so clinical trials are fixed because, you know, Brandon sure. built an awesome website. It's like, no, that's that's not the thing, but this is an enormous piece of the puzzle, certainly. We opened this conversation with you saying, hey, you have sent plenty of friends, family, interested parties to clinicaltrial.gov. Sure. You ask any healthcare worker, um, they have done the same. And they've done it with a pit of like dread in their stomach, knowing that it probably would yes. go nowhere, right? Uh, one of the things that we're excited about studying, and we're, like I probably can't uh, talk about it yet on this podcast, but one of sure. the things we're, we're studying with a major health system in Southern California is what happens when you bring power like into the clinic and you give mm -hmm. clinicians and healthcare, um, healthcare workers uh, more patient-centric tools to go looking for clinical trial options. Does that increase you know, accessibility? Does that increase the amount that patients can learn about their options at that clinic? We're running some, uh, some interesting research over the next little while uh, on this specific topic. Sure. Now, does that take the form of almost direct marketing in office, you know, where you've got the little pamphlets that say, have you heard about Viagra? It's like, well, have you heard about power? Is it that? Is it more informing physicians and staff? I'm I'm curious. And again, if you aren't, aren't ready to chat about any of it, but we can talk hypothetically too, whatever. I'm just curious. Yeah. Hopefully it looks a little bit less like, have you heard of Viagra? And a little bit more like Square. Right. <laughs> you know, like an interesting <laughs> modern digital presence, like in the like in, sure. the, in the clinic um, and a little bit less like, oh, we're, we're handing around these like trifolds. <laughs> like, Here's a pamphlet. Exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, there'll probably be some like physical, <laughs> um, physical collateral, but if we do our jobs right. It's not, we're not hanging our hat on, on trifolds. Sure. Sure. I mean, look, I love print, sure. but come on. Yeah. So I'm curious, you've been sort of baiting this for quite a while now, almost a year. Right. Is that right? What sort of obstacles did you face in fundraising, anything that made you go back to the drawing board, anything that you really 
didn't realize you would have to iterate on or improve on on either side of the market or anything that unlocked your ability to go raise what you needed to really build out the platform. I'm curious how that process went for you. You know, I think two interesting thoughts here. The first is that the biggest challenge probably through this process is just how busy a space it is. There are patient advocacy groups, there's clinicaltrial.gov, there are other folks who are trying to serve patients through navigation services, right? They pair you with a human that helps walk you through the process. It's quite a busy space, right? One of the big challenges we had to overcome was how are we different? What do we do that enables us to build a a technology-driven solution here? And I think the thing that really resonated for us and hopefully for um, our incredible set of uh, supporters here is that there's actually a contrarian view here. The unorthodox point of view is that historically, everybody has built for the pharmaceutical company or the, or the trial sponsor, the biopharma sponsor in mind. They're the ones who have the budgets. They're the ones where sure. the dollars end up flowing down to, to make a business model work. Um, and as a result of building primarily for the, uh, the industry, you don't end up building directly for the patient. Our view is that we need to put patients at the center. We're building for the patients first. Um, and in doing so, by doing well for the patients, um, we have an opportunity to serve the life sciences system. But that only comes from taking the patient-centered view and building for patients first. Um, and that's really, I think, what ended up resonating and what allowed us to like, generate some interesting support from, uh, from investors. Yeah. I mean, it is such a, like you said, it's busy, but it's just incredibly fragmented. Yeah. Like you were saying earlier, I mean, you can, as a consumer, uh, whether as a current patient or a newly anointed one, like you said, you 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 can go on Google and and your options are limited and dangerous in the sense that it's easy to either feel frustrated quickly that there's nothing out there for you, be led down the wrong road, to find yourself on Facebook on you know there's so many well-meaning people out there of course and so many helpful people who taken it upon themselves either formally or informally to run these groups to be an advocate, all these incredible organizations whether they're former patients or whatever it might be, yeah. but at the same time there's not just misinformation, but a lack of information or biased information. Like you said, you got to go to the company's websites. So do you present yourself then as not just to a consumer, but to folks you're looking to fundraise from as an aggregator, as like you said, this single source of truth? Are you just, hey, we're seeking to replace clinicaltrials.gov? How do you elevate yourself above all of those other options? Yeah, you know, I think the example that is really easy to wrap our heads around here is we're building the Zillow for clinical trial, mm-hmm. right? Prior to Zillow, plenty of information out there, plenty of you know multiple listing services out there, plenty of brokers who wanted to talk their own book sure. <laughs> and sell you a house that's in yeah. there like yeah. that like they are currently sure. like, representing, right? Uh, but Zillow sure. scooped it all up and presented it in an unbiased way in a mm-hmm. interface that was built for the buyer, for the consumer. Um, that's exactly what we're right. doing here, right? You know, there's plenty of all this fragmented data, a little bit of biased data, a little hard to hard to navigate if you don't want to go into the government systems. Exact same setup. We're doing that um, and building the uh, the Zillow for clinical trials. So, what has the reception been like on the clinical trial side uh, for researchers for pharmaceutical companies? Are you proactively approaching them? How does that work? How do you get in? good with them so they come to you guys first so they feel like they're getting a benefit from it funnily enough they've been coming to us <laughs> which is but that's awesome. which is you know the best story that you could hope for right coming out of this this launch here we actually had an influx of, of inbound interest 
um, almost too much for us to, to handle right now, which is, you know, uh-huh. knock on wood, uh, only a good thing. I think at the end of the day, in this specific domain of life science, the patient's interests and the pharmaceutical company's interests and the researcher's interests are all aligned, which is around unblocking the system, right? Like mm-hmm. patients are truly and deeply motivated to A, find and get access to, you know, promising options, but then B, if you, you speak to patients, uh, there's quite a bit of inherent altruism here where patients are interested in contributing to a, a growing body of literature on um, sure. specific conditions. And on the researcher side, they're more than happy to work with anybody who can help solve this problem of 86% of trials are delayed. Sure. In fact, that is the single biggest problem in life science research today. The fact that almost every trial, all research is delayed. It's a burning platform. It can cost up to... million a day in opportunity cost due to these delays. So everybody wants uh, to find ways, you know, to make this system connect uh, in a more efficient way. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where we want to play. That's fascinating. It seems like there's been a lot of folks waiting for for something like this to to come around. Is the system from the the trial side of the market, is it fairly self-serve? At this point, to to input a new trial to fit themselves in, or are you guys still onboarding folks manually? How, where are we in the process? Yeah, so today we're in closed beta on that side. We're onboarding selectively, making sure that we can have impact, making sure that the experience is easy enough that you know mm-hmm. researchers love the experience as much as patients, right? Like you, you kind of under the radar for about a year with patients uh, because we were dedicated yeah. to making sure that it was a delightful experience once we went public with it. And we're kind of going through the same motions sure. on the on the researcher side now. We want to make sure that it's really solving their problems. They r- truly love what we've built for them so that once we open the doors a little bit more, um, we're confident that we can have the impact that we want to have. That's great. So what do you feel like the timeline is to open that up a little more? Is it um, six months, a year, or is it, hey, we're going to just do this right and then we'll see what happens? I'm curious how that fits on your side running this thing, but also any pressure you might have from investors to see this thing take off? Yeah. Um, I don't want to commit to when it's going to be oh, God, like no. every, like, yeah. like open the floodgates. Um, but what I will say is that we are constantly onboarding more folks into our closed betas. So if anybody's interested in, mm-hmm. you know, testing out, making sure that, or I guess seeing, you know, the impact that we can have for their research, we're open today. I like to have those conversations. Um, and we'll have a honest conversation about scope our ability to have impact and whether now is the right time but we're, we're ready to have those conversations today what do you find yourself now a year later still closed beta but opening your wings a little bit here what do you in your position at the company find yourself doing differently now than you were a year ago besides just handling more intake is the job what you thought it would be is it having the impact you thought it would be even though you're still in the very early days? Yeah, that's a fun question. Well, podcasts like this, for one, <laughs> are things that we were very intentionally <laughs> not doing a year ago in the spirit of uh, keeping things under wraps. But, but tr- like, um, in that vein, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these activities that you might bucket under, like uh, getting the word out um, of what we're up to, these are the kinds of things that we weren't doing intentionally for, for quite some time to make sure that we had you know, the mm-hmm. product and the experience right. And we're starting to open the floodgates, hiring a little bit more being more open to um, growing the team. We wanted to operate from a philosophy of a lean team can make faster, more progress when there's a lot of uncertainty. Now that there's a little bit more certainty, mm-hmm. being 
open again to have more conversations to expand the team. And then, you know, while we were building for patients, we weren't building for researchers or life science. And that's the next leg here. Uh, so yeah, to your point, far more conversations with, uh, with the life science industry now too. Gotcha. Gotcha. So this one probably seems pretty specific. Um, if you took any time to get a little more familiar with what we do, first of all, it's time you'll never get back. I apologize. <laughs> and second of all, it's pretty specific uh, where we've honed ourselves, which is, like I said, it's science for people who give a shit. And it's a lot of folks who are coming here. Look, they come to us either because they're a policymaker, whatever level, whether a farmer or a student or a scientist or a founder or funder, whatever it might be. They give a shit for some reason. They are dealing with reinsurance markets when it comes to wildfires or floods, or they lost a loved one to COVID, or they're invested in life scientists, whatever it might be. But the whole point is they come here because they're not interested in 101 anymore. They're past that. They're ready to take some sort of action. We provide a huge variety of those things, but try to really make them measurable and specific. Smash your finger against this button because we've done the work to show you that it's something that's either going to help you feel better or really move the needle or hopefully both. This feels pretty specific because you've built a two-sided tool for people who are really in need and other people that are really in need, both really trying to do the right thing to feel better and to make a measurable difference. And that's partly why I couldn't have DM'd you quicker than, than when I did. I want to talk about action steps, as we sure. call them, that folks can take to get involved, but to also support your mission. So on the consumer side, let's say I'm mid-40s, mom in... Kentucky with breast cancer. How does this process work for me? Uh, this process is actually built for you, right? Okay. Withpower.com is our website. Go on. You can search for your condition. You can search. You can narrow it in by your location and how far you're willing to travel. And depending on the condition, we even allow you to filter by biomarkers. If it's relevant to your condition, we allow you to filter by number of prior treatments. These are actually things that you couldn't do before. <laughs> These are like new superpowers that mm -hmm. you know, we've unlocked with sure. you know, some of the data science that, uh, that we we're speaking about earlier. So like if you're in a position where um, you've got a condition that you're working through, our website was built for you. If you're doing research on behalf of a loved one, friend, family member, our platform was built for you. And if you're a healthcare worker, a provider, and you're interested in bringing better tools into your practice, and, and if you're a little bit tired of referring people to clinicaltrials.gov, withpower.com send folks our way. Hopefully we make their lives easier. I imagine it will. Again, anything is a step up. Can I create a profile and create a saved search for my condition or for if I'm an internist or whatever it might be for my type of practice, mm. you know, or is it all proactive searching? Is that to come? Tell me what that side of the experience is like if I get there and go like, mm, not quite, but it seems like there'll be something eventually. As a patient or somebody who's searching on behalf of a patient, you can absolutely make a profile. You can search without a profile. We don't try to gate it behind signing up and making an account. Mm -hmm. You can search without a profile, but mm -hmm. as you find trials that are interesting, you can make a profile to make sure that we now know more about what might be relevant for you. As a physician, you cannot yet make a physician-specific profile, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but if you're interested in helping us understand what would be helpful for you, email me. <laughs> um, sure. Okay. That, like, that would be great. Great. We'll put that in the show yeah, notes. totally. If you're a uh, principal investigator, a sponsor, a, like a CRO, and you want to understand how our platform can work better with your trials, email me. Um, we're open to conversations. Uh, we're learning every single day. One of the one of the things that is important, you know, for us is that we come in with a beginner's mind. Uh, we're outsiders in this space, and as a result, we're here to learn. Um, and we wouldn't have. Uh, I don't think we like we would have gotten this far, and nor will we get to where 
uh, we won't do if we don't continue bringing that mindset um, every single day. So email me, always happy to have a conversation um, and learn learn if anybody's willing to share uh, what's in their brains. How big is your team now? We're about 10. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty lean. It's pretty lean. We pride ourselves on it, actually. <laughs> Any hiring goals if there are folks who want to get much more directly involved with this sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So probably two kinds of profiles most directly. I think every uh, tech entrepreneur will tell you that they're hiring for engineers. We are no different. Yeah. And then maybe something that's a little bit more specialized uh, for us is we're starting to think about what does business development mean in the life science industry? Mm -hmm. Um, So always open to having conversations with seasoned life science execs, business development execs who are interested in having an impact with a with a smaller team and hopefully with a new technology that can really move the needle. Is there a jobs hiring page, anything like that on power? Yeah, if you scroll all the way down to the bottom, um, we have a, a link to our careers page uh, and that, that's where you can go to learn great. more. Great, we'll, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes as I'll well. I'll send it over to you. Um, that's all super helpful. I'm going to bring us to our last sort of few questions here because I don't want to keep you forever. Anything else I should have asked? Anything else you want to get into um, here um, before I let you go? Again, I want to walk the line of obviously still closed beta. Don't get too crazy. Like you said, there's some things you're working on you're not totally ready to talk about yet. And we can revisit this someday soon. But um, if there's anything I'm missing, please let me know. One of the things that's probably worth also talking about is, um, hey, we spoke about representation as a problem um, that needs to be solved mm-hmm. in clinical trials. And I reframed the representation problem as a transparency and accessibility problem. One thing we didn't talk about is how that's panning out in the data. So as we look at the, the, the user data on our platform, what we're seeing is that actually our, our, uh, our users are representative of the US population. Um, if you look at all the, the racial and ethnic demographic mm-hmm. cuts by US census, mm-hmm. our user base is actually representative of the population. What does that mean? Well, what that, what that means is that um, the patients on our platform are three to 10x more representative than clinical trials today. Uh, what that means is that transparency and accessibility is a huge lever that drives our ability to address the representation problem in clinical research. I will be curious as you get into, like you said, sort of the business development side and working more with researchers and trials and, 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 and the companies behind them or universities or research hospitals, sure. whatever it might be. It's a known known that diversity in these trials is is a huge glaring problem. But I'm I'm curious to see how much that drives them, which is, hey, how can we actively recruit, use this tool to actively recruit more people, again, within striking distance geographically, but to start to really improve these numbers so that one, again, it's the right thing to do, full stop. Second, because like you said, we're we're approving drugs that have not been tested on large segments of the population, we don't know how that's going to go. And I, I'm curious how much, hopefully, quite a bit, but also I'm, I'm well aware that that can be a, a tough needle to thread. Can't just wave a wand and all of a sudden your numbers go up. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's it's a complicated, multifaceted problem. I'll make a plug, Love plugs. Uh, which is that we're currently working on a white paper with some of the leading thinkers um, in the space about how we can work on the representation problem in clinical trials. And um, it's a shocker uh, that it's not one person's like set of responsibilities, right? There's like a, a multifaceted ecosystem approach that needs to be taken here across different levels of industry, all the way like uh, from like the patient engagement tools through to how do we think about regulatory incentives and all the actors in between. And there are levers to pull on each of them. I think one of the challenges historically around this is hey, we know that we need to improve diversity and 
we make it one person's problem. And this poor person at the, at the clinic is now being told that they need to recruit more diverse patients. What are they going to do about it? They're kind of left on this island to solve this tractable problem sure. like on their own. So we're really excited about this white paper that we're, uh, we're working on. We're excited to publish it soon. That's really exciting. Yeah, I, I think obviously the more the more research that's out there, the better. But like you said, it's, it is not an intractable problem. It is a hugely complex societal problem. Mm-hmm. And clinical trials are just one area that is affected by this sort of system we've designed and reinforced for for quite a while absolutely whether that's redlined city blocks or whatever it might be at the same time if there's anything that i've tried to coach folks on either in broadcast or one-on-one or to family members or to myself over the past couple years as we're locked in our living rooms and then and then more it is all you can do is all you can do which is control as much as you can control and then you have to let go of a lot of the rest. Mm. Um, so I hope as much as there is a this huge potpourri of issues with a lack of inclusion in, in, in these things or directly marginalizing people, that you all are able to affect this piece of the puzzle as much as you can, because it truly will make a huge difference as we look at things like CRISPR or look at what else can we do with mRNA, whether it's malaria or whatever it might be, or breast cancer or profound things that could come out of the life sciences, like you said, but there's definitely a bottleneck. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As we, as we look forward at kind of like the impact that we want to have, right. There's this dual part mission where we want to help the patients of today, right. Who need transparency and access to leading medical research. And we want to help the patients of tomorrow by accelerating the speed at which the life science industry can do research. And in doing so, bring medicines of the future a little bit closer to us today. I love it. I think it's great. Thanks for fixing everything. Oh yeah, no Your problem. Congratulations. <laughs> it's over. Yeah, it's done. All right. Last couple of questions. Sure. I'm going to get you out of here, Brandon. Yeah. Slightly more meta. When is the first time in your life uh, when you realized you had power of change by yourself, family member, little team, with the power to do something meaningful when you were like, oh shit, I did that or I could do that. Could be third grade, could be, you know, nine months ago. I'm curious. What was that spark? There was a moment when I was, I think, in third grade, and this is like super nerdy. Third grade, I was like, I was the kid who was playing cards in the card shop, like with like the adults. I don't know if you ever played like these, like these trading card games, these like strategy card games growing up. But there was this moment when I was playing them and I had this love for the game. But then I also realized that the level of competition that I was going to on the weekends was very different than the level of competition that I had on the playgrounds. And there emerged this business opportunity <laughs> as like this third grader who was getting shuffled, you know, to the card store on Saturdays and then to the playground, like during the week where I would buy cards at the store and then bring them over to the playground and, and sell them at a markup. <laughs> I remember my, my mom was livid, but it was, it was probably the first time that, that she realized that I'd be, I'd be a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. Wait, what was your game of choice? What are we talking about here? Competitively, I played uh, Yu-Gi-Oh and Magic the Gathering, um, and I tried to go pro <laughs> in Magic the Gathering. I love it. Uh, is there still a small percentage of you that that thinks that that's a possible? I still play occasionally, uh-huh. but I can't keep up with uh, how fast the game moves today, so I need to play a specific format of the game that doesn't require me to upkeep um, any of my cards. <laughs> that's fair. That feels like a happy medium. Yeah. Brandon, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? I need to give the uh, the shout out to my co-founder, Basque. Um, I mean, we've been working together for years now, but he's probably one of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with. 
Um, and he continues to to raise the bar for for me and the team every single day. So it's just a pleasure to work with him day in and day out. How are your duties split? So the proverbial startup duties are uh, you're building a thing or you're selling a thing. Given mm-hmm. the fact that I'm on this podcast, um, you can probably intuit that I'm selling the thing <laughs> when he's building the thing. <laughs> and doing an admirable job of it. I'm working on it. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Division of duties and clear expectations around that can can really make everything much, much easier. Not easy but easier, certainly. And the right partner. (laughs) Oh, 100%. 100%. My wife and I don't often work together on too much, but we're incredibly supportive of each other. And, and, uh, you know, we're parents, which is difficult enough and wonderful, but it's it's, uh, always important to look around and go, oh my God, thank God we found each other because holy shit, this is hard enough as it is without each other. Yeah, totally. Any self-care, going for walks, going for a run, uh, when you're like, I cannot think about withpower.com for any longer. Yeah. What is it for you? Two things. Physically being uh, being in the gym, just like lifting weights. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I struggled with my own health for quite some time. And I was probably too late to the game uh, to, to set up a health routine mm-hmm. and, prior- and like to start prioritizing my own health. So this is a thing that's changed probably in the last two years. And like kudos to my fiance, because a year ago she looked at me and she said, Brandon, your, your birthday gift this year is a personal trainer. <laughs> that's awesome. You need to find, find love for... Uh, for your own health. And uh, that's absolutely changed my life in the last year. That's awesome. Yeah. And then intellectually, when I'm tired of thinking about work, I read fantasy books. Like I'm just like such, like going back to the like the, the card game thing, I'm such like a little nerd on the inside. <laughs> yeah. Fantasy is basically all I've read oh, at awesome. night for the past two and a half years. <laughs> I mean, for my life, but especially the past two and a half years. What are some favorites that you'll no guilt revisit? And what is also some fantastic stuff you've read? Because I'm just going to go download them. Brandon Sanderson. Almost everything from Brandon Sanderson. They're so long though. Yeah. Oh my God. And they're egg and it's infinite. He has so many of them. <laughs> infinite infinite i do it, the math like truly doesn't add up on the level of production he must have you know an army uh, just like cranking out these like stories because it is so Nasty. impressive like what he's done and yeah. you compare that with like george r, r. martin's kind of output in you right like, it's it's unbelievable yeah. how fast he writes and then uh patrick rothfuss the name of the wind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i don't know if you've read this one but just a poetic writer do you think the third book will ever come? I think he's painted himself into the same corner as as George R. R. Martin, where it's such a tall tale, and to try to wrap it up in his promised three-part trilogy is quite hard. Mm-hmm. Did you see there was someone last year gave some interview and was like, oh, I don't think he's written anything, yeah. basically. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was no. like, oh my God, oh no. <laughs> oh no. Like, yeah. If I could make mo- one more plug for, yeah, for a book, and I, like, this is, it doesn't have to yeah. be like for the podcast. Sure. Should we read Guy K? I don't I don't think so. Guy Gabriel K. He's a Canadian writer and he does historical fiction with like a quarter turn of fantasy. Um, so it's mostly it. like political intrigue, historical fiction. He likes okay. to cover kind of like like Constantinople in the time that it fell and became like Istanbul, like that kind of like time period around Ooh. around like the Mediterranean. Really interesting okay. work. He's fantastic. What what about you? What do you read? I'll go back to a lot of different things. I mean, you'll find me cross-referencing and creating new spreadsheets all the time. This is when my wife's like eyes glaze over like a shark. Cause I'm like, there's a new list of 80 greatest fancy books. She's like, you've read them. You've read them all. I'm like, I know, but this is somebody else's opinion. And I got a cross-reference. She's like, please, please leave me alone. I'll tell you what I did recently. That was a little late on, uh, but what was fantastic is by uh, NK uh, Jemison, the fifth season Mm. books which is, I think there's a name for the whole set, but that's the first one. I truly thought those were fantastic. I'll do anything 
man, at this point, if it turns my brain off at night, I don't have to think about climate change. Great. Right. And then someone's like, it's fantasy, but it's about climate change. I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't do, I need a little separation of church and state. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. Fiction is a nice escape. Uh, it's the best. Yeah. It's the best. Okay. Last one. And this is specific both to what we're talking about, but also a little different. A book you've read this year opened your mind to a topic you haven't considered before, or has actually changed your thinking in some way. We throw all the recommendations up on Bookshop, and people love to check these things out. Andre Agassi's autobiography. Oh, it's supposed to be fantastic. Just incredible. I mean, it's it's this great story where, as as a junior player, he was demolishing the competition he could not lose, and then when he hit the pro right. the pro circuit, he had a really hard time winning. And he takes you on this journey of somebody who is at the top of his game, then hits rock bottom, and has to find a way to recommit himself to excellence and rebuild himself up from the ground mm. from the ground up again in order to be competitive and then of course uh becomes um an incredibly prolific player for me that's an incredibly inspiring story and i'm always moved by these stories sure. of people who are able to achieve or get to the top of their game and, and kind of maintain it uh on some scale so that was a great book to read awesome i love it yeah i have to do that one at some point for sure all right brandon we're going to get you out of here. I really, really appreciate the time. Thank you for jumping on this. It's really exciting and powerful what you're building. And I know you're being very careful and uh, using patience and consideration uh, as you build this thing. And I I hope that you stick with that because I, I know the pressures to grow and to affect the world are, are great, but it's really important what you're doing. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you for having me today, Gwen, for reaching out and for, for such kind words. It's been a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Where can our listeners follow you online, should you so choose? Twitter, at Brandon H. Lee, at With Power HQ. We don't have a, a big Twitter presence. Step by step. I think if you go onto LinkedIn and you look for power, you should be able to find it. It'll be kind of hard to find Brandon Lee. We'll find out. <laughs> but, we'll find out. But ho- hopefully you can find it in the uh, and drop a link. Awesome. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks for listening to the show. A reminder, you can send feedback or questions about this episode or some guest recommendations to me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Links to anything we talked about today are in your show notes in your podcast player. If you want to rep any or your shit giver status, you can find sustainable t-shirts, hoodies, and a variety of coffee delivery vessels in our store at importantnotimportant.com slash store. You can subscribe to our critically acclaimed weekly newsletter for free at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com. Our theme music was composed by Tim Blaine. The show was edited by Anthony Luciani, and the whole episode was produced by Willow Beck. We'll see you next time.